The famed Four Corners region of the United States, where the states of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico coalesce, is known for its dramatic landscapes and impressive scenery. It's here that the images of the Wild West have entered the popular imagination, namely through the films of John Ford, who utilized the area's natural beauty for the backdrop of several of his classic westerns. In this dry, arid region, once populated by gunslinging desperados, itinerant cowboys, and several Native American tribes, lies a secret hidden in plain sight. The largest and some of the oldest archaeological sites in the United States. Known as Mesa Verde, from the Spanish for Green Table, a reference to the natural cliff formation where the sites were found, it boasted at its height several thousand inhabitants spread across different communities and was the undisputed center of the culture who built it. When was Mesa Verde first populated? Who were the indigenous people who built its bustling settlements? And what did life in these communities look like? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. As we all know, the country that's now the United States has long been populated, even before Europeans ever laid eyes or set foot upon its soil. At one time, several hundred indigenous tribes called the land home. Of these, some of the most famous hailed from the southwestern region of the country. With names like the Navajo, Apache, and Zuni, they each had their own unique and rich cultures, separated by language and customs, and of course, religion. Though they've roamed the American Southwest since time immemorial, even they were predated by another indigenous group, one whose legacy can still be seen in the magnificent settlements they left behind. Let us then embark on a journey long before recorded history began. The time is some 20,000 years ago, during the Ice Age. The place is an isolated speck of land between Siberia and Alaska. It's here, via a land bridge that has since been submerged, that the first humans crossed into North America from their ancestral homelands in Northeast Asia. These nomadic hunter-gatherers were spurred on by the migration of the megafauna they hunted for food, clothing, and shelter, namely mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, and bison. With the end of the Ice Age around 10,000 years ago, said land bridge was submerged beneath the waves as sea levels rose for the first time in eons. Isolated from their place of origin, these hunter-gatherers began to spread across North America and would go on to populate the entire continent over several thousands of years and generations. Naturally, one of the many places they settled was none other than the American Southwest, giving birth to some of the richest and most diverse of the Native American cultures. Archaeological evidence shows that these Paleo-Indians, the former word from the Greek palaios meaning ancient, first arrived in the region around 9500 BC. Like other hunter-gatherers who had crossed over from Northeast Asia, they too were following the big game upon which they so heavily relied. Known as the Clovis culture, after the distinct stone spear points they made, most of which had been unearthed in and around Clovis, New Mexico, they camped largely near rivers and streams, which provided a clean and reliable water source. Indeed, there is little evidence to suggest that they lived in Mesa Verde proper at this time. That would come much later. But traces of their presence dating back to 9500 BC revealed that they were, in fact, living in the immediate vicinity. But the end of the Ice Age brought with it a great deal of environmental change. As the planet gradually warmed, the vast grasslands that comprised the American Southwest gave way to the region's decidedly more arid and drier climate with which we're familiar today. Lush pine forests emerged around Mesa Verde, with smaller animals to populate them. It was during this time, at around 7500 BC, that the Paleo-Indians began arriving in increasing numbers, though it remains a mystery as to whether they were seasonal or semi-permanent residents by that point. Still, it was a period 
period of great innovation, as these early inhabitants were forced to adapt to the drastic environmental changes taking place around them. With the megafauna they had hunted for eons disappearing rapidly and in great numbers, the development and use of the atlatl, a sort of spear-thrower or spear-projectile, proved an efficient and critical tool for the purpose of hunting smaller games such as ducks, rabbits, and antelope. By 6000 BC, the start of what archaeologists refer to as the North American Archaic Period, the Paleo-Indians had begun gathering wild nuts, berries, and seeds, which they collected and stored in earthware jars for consumption. They primarily inhabited the outlying areas of Mesa Verde, but were frequently migrating into the mountains, the tops of mesas, or canyons, depending upon the season or weather patterns. There they fashioned shelters out of rock, and left behind beautiful art on the rocky walls, which can still be seen today. For centuries they lived the semi-nomadic existence, but major changes were looming on the horizon. The period from about 5000 to 2500 BC brought relative environmental stability to the region. It was at this time that the population boomed around Mesa Verde, as groups from all over the American Southwest flocked to the area. Drawn largely by its cooler temps thanks to its higher elevation, increased snowfall in winter combined with spring rains ensured that there was always a steady flow and source of fresh water. Naturally, these conditions were the incentives the Southwest tribes needed to begin establishing more permanent settlements. The aforementioned rock shelters they inhabited before evolved into rudimentary houses made of wood and mud, and rock storehouses were used for preserving perishable goods. Their society began to become increasingly more complex and sophisticated as they opened themselves up to trade with other indigenous peoples from as far north as Colorado and as far south as Mexico. Turquoise and obsidian began pouring into the region, as did abalone shells from the Pacific coast, all of which they fashioned into magnificent pieces of jewelry. Rock art flourished, and the domestication of certain plants led to sustainable agriculture. By 1000 BC, society in and around Mesa Verde was well underway. It was at this time that the telltale signs of civilization began to emerge. Having virtually shirked their hunter-gatherer roots, these tribes began relying less on wild food sources in favor of domesticated crops. The introduction of corn to the region at the end of the Archaic period proved a game-changer, and by 300 BC it had become a staple crop in their diet. In addition, having foregone the earthenware jars they'd made for centuries, they began creating intricate woven baskets, giving rise to the aptly named basket-maker culture. This practice is what separated these people from other indigenous groups in the area at the time. Soon they were weaving also sorts of practical items, such as robes, blankets, mats, and sandals, the finer of which have been found in the graves of some of the area's more affluent citizens, who were often buried within or adjacent to the communities they built. Rock art became increasingly more sophisticated as well, depicting humans and animals in both realistic and abstract forms in single and larger formats. By AD 500, use of the atlatl for hunting gave rise to the bow and arrow, which increased productivity. The basket-maker culture came to an end shortly thereafter, when baskets were swapped for ceramic pottery. These were a major improvement over baskets daubed with pitch, as they could hold water more easily and protect nuts and seeds from rodents, insects, and mold. A century later, the inhabitants at Mesa Verde had started using clay pots to cook stews and soups. But perhaps the biggest achievement of this time was the establishment of permanent year-round settlements within Mesa Verde proper after A.D. 575. What started as villages of one to three residences tucked away inside canyon walls was, by A.D. 675, a series of large communities that boasted a total of some 1,000 to 1,500 inhabitants. Thus began the Pueblo period, for these people were the ancestors of the Pueblo Native American tribes, and are referred to as the ancestral Puebloans. 
Archaeologists place the start of the Pueblo period at around AD 750. The first phase of this period is known simply as Pueblo I. The transition from the basket maker culture to the Pueblo I is marked mainly by a change in architecture, which doubled their capacity for food storage and led to the creation of interconnected residences known as Pueblos, from the Spanish for towns. Above ground dwellings made of mud and wood were used for everything from living quarters to religious and political purposes. As these communities popped up along riverbanks and streams and continued to grow, the ancestral Puebloans found it increasingly difficult to survive on hunting, foraging, and gardening, leading to what historian Richard Wilshusen describes as, quote, a sedentary and communal way of life that changed ancestral Pueblo society forever, unquote. Within one generation, the average number of households within these settlements grew from one to three to 15 to 20, each with an average population of some 200 people. Truly exponential growth within a relatively short time. As a result, population density increased considerably, which strengthened security against raids from enemy tribes and encouraged residents to work together. By 860, the total population of Mesa Verde numbered somewhere around 8,000. The largest of the settlements had plazas as well as massive pit structures used primarily for community gatherings. But these magnificent buildings were just a taste of what was to come. Unfortunately, due to prolonged interchanging periods of drought and unpredictable rainfall throughout the late 9th century, most of these settlements were abandoned within 40 years of their founding. And, by 880, Mesa Verde's population was in a state of decline. The remainder of the 9th and the beginning of the 10th century saw major population of the region, as its citizens migrated south to nearby Chaco Canyon in search of better, more fertile areas for farming with decidedly more predictable rainfall. At least for a little while, Mesa Verde proper will be replaced by Chaco Canyon as the center of ancestral Puebloan culture. The start of the second phase of the Pueblo period, known as Pueblo II, reveals the ingenuity of the Mesa Verdeans as they settled into their new home. It was an era marked by several architectural achievements, namely the shift from mud and wood structures to those made of individual units, that is, sandstone bricks, and adobe mortar in which to hold them together. This masonry approach laid the foundations, pun intended, for the iconic ancestral Puebloan buildings that would follow. In addition, advancements in agriculture, specifically the growing of crops near drainages, meant that they no longer had to rely on the unpredictable patterns of rainfall. They built impressive reservoirs in which to conserve the more fertile soil and runoff, which proved vital to the growing of crops. This practice single-handedly saved ancestral Puebloan culture, as they were no longer at the mercy of the elements. In fact, by the early 11th century, the number of crops had returned to normal, and by 1050, the population of the area made a comeback, and slowly but surely, people began to return to Mesa Verde itself. Bringing the masonry approach back with them, several villages in Mesa Verde began adopting the Chacoan style of architecture. With their signature sandstone bricks and multiple stories, the Chacoan Great House became the domicile of choice for the Mesa Verdeans from 1075 onward. However, drought would yet again plague the region in 1150, which brought an abrupt stop to their construction in the cliffside communities. In a 50-year period between 1130 and 1180, the population in nearby Chaco Canyon dropped considerably. Instead, the Mesa Verdeans returned en masse to their former home, leading to extensive growth for the settlement. It was during this phase, known as Pueblo III, that they constructed large iconic settlements within canyons, perched high above the canyon floor in the crooks of canyon walls that were within walking distance of the fields they tilled and the valuable water sources they needed to survive. Population density led to the construction of the most durable and lasting of ancestral Pueblo in architecture, and it's these that can be seen in Mesa Verde today. Farming became the primary method of sustaining these large communities, the biggest of which was a place known as Cliff Palace and boasted at its height a whopping six to eight hundred residents. But this dramatic increase in population had its downsides. 
For example, deforestation began taking place in the surrounding pine forest as the felling of trees used for construction reduced the habitats of vital plant and animal species upon which the Mesa Verdeans relied. It wasn't all negative, however. On the plus side, imported goods brought a considerable amount of wealth and prosperity to Mesa Verde in the late 11th and early 12th centuries. Turquoise, pottery, and shells were among some of the more sought-after luxuries that were brought in. As such, their villages thrived as several multi-story buildings were constructed along with protective walls and towers, all of which have gained the reputation the world over as being among the world's greatest archaeological treasures, according to historian Mark Varian. There is historical evidence to believe that such structures were inhabited anywhere from 50 to 200 years, the longest of any ancestral Pueblo and dwellings. By the start of the 13th century, some 22,000 people called Mesa Verde home, and the increase in population showed no signs of stopping. Alas, however, it eventually did, bringing with it the end of Mesa Verde as the ancestral Puebloans knew it, for with the dawning of the 13th century came a 69-year period of below-average annual rainfall in the region. This was followed by a span of particularly cold temperatures. Despite a drop in imports, namely ceramics, in around 1270, production in and around Mesa Verde remained steady, and its citizens continued to farm the land until a drought hit between 1276 to 1299. It was this last event that brought about the end of over 700 years' worth of continual human presence in the area, with the final inhabitants leaving Mesa Verde in 1285. As you can see, the growth and development of Mesa Verde was no small feat. Unpredictable weather patterns and constant resettlement as a result saw the ancient Puebloans move from place to place. Despite such prospects, however, they made the best of their situation, as proven time and again by their ingenuity. Near-constant developments and advancements in architecture, art, and technology, as well as sophisticated agricultural and farming practices, saw to it that they thrived no matter where they settled. Few cultures in history can boast such achievements in the face of insurmountable odds, and perhaps that's what can continues to fascinate the world about these truly remarkable people. All one need to do is visit these impressive settlements in Mesa Verde today, now Mesa Verde National Park in southwestern Colorado, to see for themselves. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and for coming along with me on this fascinating journey to the American Southwest. I apologize for the lack of episode last week, but I was severely inundated with other work and projects, which left me with a severe lack of time. However, regular scheduling is back, and I have some truly awesome topics on the way, so stay tuned. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to ensure its continued output, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click that support button, where you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. This podcast is available wherever podcasts are accessed, so be sure to check it out on all major platforms and give it a like, follow, and share. Join me next week as we take a look at one of the biggest riots in modern music history, all over the production of a ballet. Be sure to tune in then and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.